when I went to take over Middle East and organised crime, we had um, commanders with the names of Snake and Slasher. I mean, they were, they were, they were again, I use that word lightly, iconic investigators, detectives, highly respected. And suddenly there's this bird wearing a pink suit. You know, how's this going? <laughs> but, you know, that's me. Welcome to Claiming Your Confidence, the podcast. I'm Katrina Blowers, and as a journalist, speaker, and mentor, I know what it's like to have confidence. I also know what it's like to have to dig really deep and find it all over again. I've interviewed hundreds of high-profile people, and this is what I know for sure. We all suffer fear, imposter syndrome, and self-doubt, no matter how shiny our life appears to be. So let's reframe the confidence conversation together and uncover the hacks and secrets to get more of it. Claiming your confidence starts now. Known as the gangbuster, trailblazing top cop Deb Wallace became renowned as the woman who made bikies cry. Deb has faced off with murderers, drug manufacturers, dismantled some of Australia's most feared gangs and put violent criminals behind bars, all while wearing her trademark heels and colourful suits. In this episode, Deb will share the confidence it took to face off with crime bosses and earn their respect, career advice for anyone looking to smash their own glass ceilings, and how she found the self-belief to delve into the dark underbelly of crime, but do it her way. Let's claim our confidence with the amazing Deb Wallace. If anyone kind of embodies confidence, um, your amazing career and all the things that you've had to do and put yourself out there, uh, I think that there's no one really better to talk about confidence than someone like you. Yeah, that makes it, it, it seems like that, doesn't it? And probably in the latter part of my career, that that was true, but it certainly wasn't something that I was probably born with. It was something that's probably developed over time with experience. It's, it's certainly, I would say, before, say, 12 years into my career, and I, I can talk to you about that was a turning point about how that happened, but certainly I, I would consider myself quite beige, if that means makes sense. And, wow. And ultimately then, I, of course, I was then become known for my colourful suits and high heels. So there was sort of, I, I sort of grasped onto that and, and, and wore it like a, a badge of honour in a way. Which I absolutely love. Now, speaking of clothes, we always begin each episode asking the guest what they're wearing and where they are, just so when people are listening to this episode, they can picture you in their mind. Yeah, well, I've, I've had a sea change. I'm a Western Suburbs girl from Sydney, um, through and through, born and bred at Parramatta, et cetera, and uh, a mad eel savant. But I've, in my retirement, which was now six months in, I've had a sea change and moved to uh, Lake Macquarie area. So uh, I... I I find I'm sitting as probably everyone else is in in aqua in um you're probably lucky I'm not wearing what I wore to aqua aerobics this morning so I've changed <laughs> and I'm now in my active wear so I'm and lucky there's no no video so I'm sitting yep as everyone probably is these days um I'm sitting in my active wear and having just come back from for a walk with the dogs so yes, uh, your retirement life sounds so beautiful and you've definitely earned it with several decades of doing it pretty tough but I want to take you right back to 
deb of um, pre-police and police was something that, you know, you, you certainly, um, from what I've read about you, you weren't, you didn't have this burning ambition to be a police officer and it was your dad who kind of cheekily suggested it to you saying, you're either going to join the cops or they're going to arrest you. You must have been a bit of a live wire as a kid. You know, I, 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 I was probably typical, I, I came, I was a third sibling after my older two, but there's a big gap. So it was my brother's 14 years older, my sister's 12 years and very much from a very grounded working class family. And um, and I think I sort of was um, a bit out of the mould a bit, as in I was probably spoiled by my dad, having the girl coming along some years after the other two. And I felt I could use that to my advantage. So I was a little bit nonconformist there for a while that I think drove my, particularly in those, those teenage years of 15, 16 and 17. But, um, and I think I, you know, drove my poor dad, you know, probably in today's standards, it was probably pretty tame. But in those standards, you know, it was my parents were pretty strict. So I wanted to push the, the envelope a fair bit. So, yeah, so it was, um, yeah, it was a bit of an accident, really, because it was an expectation in, in, in our family that you'd get a job that was secure and a government job because, you know, you could have it for life and you get an income, which is very important. Um, didn't have any great aspirations other than working in an office. And um, my dad worked at an electrical company as a locksmith and he was excited when I left school in 1977 to say, I've got you a job as a clerk typist. And it was like high fives all around. I'm thinking, oh, my God. Um, so <laughs> I, I did that for, for three or four years and loved it. I met the most wonderful people, lifelong friends, but it was not where I wanted to be forever. So I wanted a career. So I needed to look for something. And as fate had it, there was an ad in 1981 for the New South Wales Police looking for women to be on front line and it wasn't obviously we've had police women for over 100 years but they weren't really front line until the late 70s so that's where I came into this sort of opportunity that was created by these wonderful women before me to be able to come in the front line so I applied in 1982 and, and was accepted and started as 22 year old in 1983. But even though there was more opportunity then for women in policing. I understand you still had to put an F on your report to, um, when you were writing reports to indicate that it had been written by a woman. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, and, and again, there wasn't many women in our class and my first station was Blacktown, Mount Druitt, uh, which was a sub, there were Western suburb stations in, in Sydney, in the outskirts of Sydney. And um, uh, we were taught in those days in our reports and it was very disciplined, the organisation back then, very, and very strong male-dominated, that you had to sign your reports off, your name, Debbie Wallace, and then your rank, probationary constable, and then your registered number, which is like your payroll number, sort of what where you came, which was 20854. Then the date and your station. And after, but for women, after your registered number, so your rank and your registered number, you had to put in brackets F, capital F. And I thought about this for a few months and you did exactly what you were told. And it wasn't for about three months in that I put a report up to the, in those days, these crown sergeants were like godlike figures in the police station, really tough. And I, it used to be all the reports would always be corrected and sent back with grammar changes, spelling changes. You know, it was standard practice to train us probationary constables. And it came back this day with typical grammar and spelling corrections. And then this big, in big red bold F written after my name because I had left it off accidentally. And that got me thinking. And I thought, why am I actually putting F on there? So I put the report, corrected the report, 
did all the grammar corrections, etc., sent it back, still without the F. Well, came back again, this time with just the big red F. So I did it again, this time left it off again. And went, by this stage now, I can imagine the Crown Sergeant was ready to rip my head off. And I got the call over the station, probationary constable Wallace attend the sergeant's office immediately. And that means big trouble. So I turned up there and <laughs> stood to attention in front of his desk and he looked at me and said, you know, are you an idiot? And I said, well, my dad might say I am. But, yeah, um, well, he said, what are you, what, how many times do I have to tell you? And then he said this, what are you, how are you going to explain this? And they showed me no F. And I said, Sarge, would you mind me saying something? He said, no, speak. And I said, well, as you can see, my name's Debbie Wallace. He said, oh, yes, brain surgeon. Got that. He said, I said, well, if there, I, I'm not quite sure, but I don't think there's another Debbie Wallace in the station who happens to be a male. But if there, <laughs> if there is, I'm happy to put F so you know it's me. And he just looked at me and I thought he went red. I thought he's going to blow a gasket. His head's going to explode. And then he started to laugh and he just said, get out. And within three months, we got a, a a memo came out statewide that women could <laughs> leave the F off. So it was a wow. small, small wins, I think, sometimes it's it important. It sure was. I bet now when you tell that story to female recruits now, they just probably can't believe it. Yeah, they do. They, they look at, you know, I, and that's what I say to um, women that are coming through on different programs and stuff, and I say to them, you know, we all want a lot more. We want, We all want to sort of you know, we talk all about, you know, opportunities and that's that's absolutely 100% right. But it, you've got to also look at how far we've come and, and also in my generation, how far we came compared to my my role models, my predecessors who weren't, you know, who worked school crossings and were sort of assisting the detectives and had their own registered numbers, weren't even allowed to be integrated into the main police force. So when we look at that journey, we have to always put it in perspective about how far we've actually come. And 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 we and we that journey is continuing on, which I'm really pleased about. But I love too how even then you were speaking up for yourself. Do you reckon that came from your dad? Where did that come from? Oh yeah, I think that's that that cheeky side of being. Well, you know, I might as well have a go here. What can, what else can they do to me? You know, I thought about that, and I and you know, I, by that stage, I I'd hoped that common sense was prevailing and, and, and they were ready for change. I mean, even having women frontline was a change. So, um, and I have to say those men at Blacktown Mount Druitt were amazing. They didn't, you know, and I have my female colleagues and we talk about it today. Yeah, it took some getting used to for them. I guess they sort of looked at us a bit of, are they my sisters? Are they my wife? Are they my daughters? Um, very protective uh, so we had to break through that as well. But, you know, it, it was, um, I think it was just time. I think we were there. And I think being frontline, we have to we have to sometimes push ourselves forward, even though it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, perhaps. Mm. Now, a massive watershed moment in your career came around 1986, um, a, a murder that really gripped the nation in a way that I think a few have. Um, I'm thinking things like, um, you know, Azaria Chamberlain, not, not that that ended up being a murder, but um, and Alison Baden-Clay, others that come to mind that have really transfixed the nation in the way that the Anita Cobby killing did. And um, I understand you were working the switchboard when you had an opportunity that pretty much paved the way for the rest of your career, didn't it? It did. I, I, um, I remember, it, you know, 
it got to this day like it was yesterday and it was um, the 2nd of February 1986 and um, yes, Anita was on her way home from uh, finishing her, sh- after her day shift on a Sunday at um, Sydney Hospital as a nurse and she had dinner with her colleagues and then afterwards, um, as you can imagine, she was kidnapped off the street, taken to a nearby rural area, um, no doubt tortured and, and raped and, and killed. And um, both murders are committed by people known to the victim. It's really high 80s, and they're the ones that the detectives eventually sort of know which line of inquiry to follow. It's They reduce it down, and they may not solve it straight away, but they will usually have in, a, in their mind knowing who's done it. But it's the random murders, the ones sort of just taken from unknown to the victim are the really difficult ones. And the man in charge of this case, Detective Sergeant Graham Rosetta, who's to me still an iconic figure, just the most amazing detective. He, I think, realised after about two days that he had no leads and nowhere to go with this and um, the media was starting to withdraw. And once the media withdrew, you know, we love him or hate him, I guess, at times, um, <laughs> the, the, the information he needed was out there somewhere and he knew that that would disappear. So no doubt faced with this dilemma, he walked past me going out to the back of the police station and I'm answering the old Sylvester switchboard, and which is these things you plug in like you see in the movies. And he looked at me and he said, Wallace, how old are you? And I said, 25, Sergeant. He said, how tall are you? And I said, five foot eight. He said, yeah, that'll work. Come with me. And I think it might have just been a spare of the moment thing. And we took me upstairs and he said, I've got this idea for two reasons. It's a bit of a gimmick. We're going to get the media to be involved in this, but we're going to do a reenactment of her last few hours and we're going to dress you up in clothes similar to what she wore. We're going to to send you out with her girlfriends. You're going to go shopping. They're going to pick some clothes similar to what she wore. We're going to dress you up, put you on the train the same time that that we think she caught the train, etc. Going to get you to get off at Blacktown and walk the route. So I did all that and and about Afterwards in the car park, Graham said there was only him and I left in the car park and he looked at me and he said, Wallace, how would you like to be a detective? And I thought to myself, gee, I must have walked good on that train. (laughs) Wow, he picked that. And and what he was allowing me, he didn't know whether I'd ever be able to be a detective or had the skills, but he was giving me the opportunity, I suppose, as a thank you to stay with the team. And although I loved my uniform cops that I work with, you know, I saw this this team under Graham that had a passion, a commitment, dogged determination. And I thought to myself then, maybe this is where I could fit in better. Maybe this is for me. And so I stayed with the team and that, again, that's the beginning of my my change into in criminal investigation of which from 1986 I haven't changed from. So that was the professional side, yeah. I bet you think about that a lot, the sort of randomness. You know, they say that, um, you know, it's it's luck is opportunity meeting preparation. Um, you were sitting there and there, but for the grace of God, you know, like he could have walked past somebody else and asked them to do the same thing. But he must have seen something in you. And, and you've also spoken before about the impact that that experience had on you where you were walking the same um, path that Anita had walked that night it was the same time of night you were wearing the same clothes that she was wearing and you really kind of started to think about what that night must have been like for her did that stay with you that experience yeah it was probably that that whole feeling of this could be and I think that's where the impact came across the nation is that um, a girl walking home from work getting on dust dusk, minding her own business, you know, 500 metres from home, 
and suddenly her life is over. And I, I, I remember getting to the spot that the detectives thought that was where um, she was taken from because the witnesses had heard screams, etc. And I remember thinking to myself, because they said to me, when you get to here, outside this house, we want you to stop and we want you to just, just stay still and we're going to just, and they did what they did, probably just worked out timings, that witness that heard the screams, could that have been this time, was the car they saw the right car, etc. But I, my, I was distracted because I didn't know what they were doing. But I remember thinking, what did she feel at exactly this time when she saw a car, oblivious, coming down the road, do a U-turn, pull up beside her? Did she think, as you would, they're asking directions? Absolutely at that point. You probably think that's all it is. And suddenly in a flash, she's dragged into the car and in a few hours her life was over and the terror she must have felt in those hours from being kidnapped to being killed, what, what, how much can a human sustain? How much, how much terror must she have felt? And I know that would have haunted her parents and her family those, those hours that she was with them. Absolutely. And not only did that experience set you on a brand new career trajectory, but it was also, I understand, quite instrumental in eventually catching and convicting her her five killers. Yeah, it was um, from what Graham told me, because it was all very, you know, confidential at the time, that, that, that reenactment we did on the following Sunday, the next day he got a call from someone that I don't think even he knows, certainly didn't disclose it to us, but it sort of gave him some information about where they need, where he needed to focus. And as he had nothing else, he put the team directly onto to these five. And it was only a matter of weeks with the, as I said, the tenacity, the dogged determination of this wonderful team that the five killers were brought to justice. Amazing. So you went from being probably one of a very few um, uniformed female police officers. I can't imagine there would have been too many female detectives back then. No, there wasn't. There was um, there was certainly a, a couple, and um, but spattered amongst that was that was a that was um a new a new sort of world we're entering into. Before women had certainly performed duties in plain clothes. The, as I said, the the previous generation. Um, and it certainly worked side by side with it. Now we've got women actually coming in to do their training to become qualified detectives. So um, certainly it, it, there wasn't that many around. But for me, and I think I think for females in particular, um, it's a great career. I mean, these days women can do anything, you know, riot squad, tactical operations, dog squad, prosecutors, the world's your oyster. But back then, um, as there wasn't very many of us, it was, you know, tread slowly, bit by bit, it was getting your credibility established first. Now, you've um, earned the nickname, oh, I don't know whether you like it or not, Gangbuster. Do you like that nickname? Look, at what, it was a media term. Um, it, it, look, I think it's flattering if it was true, but unfortunately <laughs> I, I, I'm not a gangbuster. I, I know everything I've done is a team. Every, there's no thing, nothing in police work does anyone do alone. Everything you do is through a team effort or a partner or, or whatever. So, yeah, I've just, you know, since 1995 was my introduction into the world of gangs. So, yes, my one would say I've got to get a life because since 1995 it's been gangs and drugs. So, um, and, and that's ranging from um, Asian street gangs to Asian organised crime, Middle Eastern organised crime gangs, and then finally finishing until my retirement, um, outlaw motorcycle gangs. 
So, Deb, this is around the time that I started um, my career in journalism in Sydney and it was massive. I just remember the 5T gangs in Cabramatta, um, the assassination of, I was the very first political assassination in Australia of um, Cabramatta MP John Newman. That was all the time that I was cutting my teeth as the young journo in Sydney. So it's extraordinary for me to now talk to you about that because you were at the coalface of all of that. I understand you were one of the very first officers on the scene when John Newman was assassinated. Talk us through what that was like. Yeah, it was. Um, I was on call as we, you know, you would take our turns on who was on call on. Because in Cabramatta, you know, you'd have a murder every second day, and back in those days, and I was at home and I got a call to say, "Oh, Deb, we got a murder," and you think, "Yeah, nothing unusual about that. That's what happens at Cabramatta." And they said, "You're not going to believe who it is," and I said, "Well, well." another gang member, that's all newly who it was. And they said, no, no, it's it's John Newman. And I was sort of stunned into silence because that's this is this is like, you know, a politician, this is a public figure. Who does that? So obviously didn't waste any time and jumped in the car and headed off to um directly to his address. And I met my partner there in our job because we were the local detectives, the homicide squad hadn't arrived at that stage who would normally take over something as high profile as this. So we did what you have to do at the time, secure the scene, do the initial, you know, people start doing canvases, asking questions, et cetera, et cetera. So um, my partner and I were doing that basic stuff, you know, making sure the family were okay, they were inside, et cetera. And it was during the investigation, the homicide had arrived. So everyone was getting in, doing their, starting to do their role. And um, and I remember um, if, if we had a fantastic deputy state coroner called John Hyatt working out of Westmead. And I'd had a long association with John because um, every drug overdose that happened had to go before the coroner. And I became almost like the resident expert of drug overdoses, sadly, in those days. So him and I, I had a very strong relationship with Mr Hyatt. And he's turned up and he said, look, Deb, I'm just, I, I wanted to come to the scene. I want to get a feel for this. I know this is going to be big. So can you just walk me through um, what, what you're seeing and what you know? And I was a bit, there's that confidence thing. I'm going, well, I'm just a local detective maybe you need to speak to the to the you know the homicide detectives I, I you know boy he said no no I just want to get a feel this is informal this is I just want you to walk me through what you're seeing here and so I walked him through it and he said what what is your gut telling you on this and I said well and, and again you know sometimes you should think before you speak um and I said I think they're Asian offenders he said why do you say that because are you like a profiler? I said, no, not really. I said, the Asian crooks are really good with machetes, but they're not real good with guns. And as you can see, there's shots in a big arc all the way around. And they actually um, got John, not a lucky shot, John, God, they haven't been say that, but it was a shot that wasn't, wasn't like a professional hit. It looked like it was in a way, just a rat, like a, a, a yeah, stray, stray bullet sort of got him yeah. under the arm when he was putting his car cover on and, and the way the trajectory just, you know, it was basically killed him straight away. But it they wasn't shot like, from the street, didn't they, They did. Yeah. They did. And I think as they did, I thought it was nervousness or not. And, again, people like Nick Caldas who ran the case would be able to tell more because we gave it, it obviously went over to homicide. But the arc, there was sort of shots all around, like, wow, i just got to shoot, but we're a bit nervous, we've got to do this quick. And so it, was, it really didn't look professional at all. So but that, so he looked at me and I went, oh, I mean, I, I thought, oh, what have I just said? But it turned out, even though it wasn't, it was probably pretty much like I said in the end. 
Gosh, amazing. And and then to go on and work so closely with the, the 5T gang, which was the most fearsome gang in Australia at the time, um, you know, working in Cabramatta. And as you say, their weapon of choice was machetes, but you would often sit and have tea with them. Yeah. <laughs> That's confidence. Yeah, they're, they're very un- unusual. And we look at different gangs and what motivates different gangs. Their original structure was built upon um, necessity. They were first-generation refugees, no family to speak of this gang. They bonded together like a group of street urchins, I guess, and then grew, of course, to be quite ruthless in their in their way. But they, they kept that, that sense of um, fair play in relation to the cops, really. They, their view was we do the crime, we do the time, but you've got to catch us. And so there was this sort of... I wouldn't go as far as to say mutual respect, but an understanding between us. So um, you would see them on the street, and yeah, you'd, you'd, I remember my first day I, I got there, and it set the, the tone for the for what was to be, you know, an amazing time at this wonderful community. And I was being escorted around the shopping centre, being shown where all the crime happens by a very junior officer, and um, you know, the murder happened there, and extortion there, and that's a good restaurant, etc. And then out of the corner, I saw a gangster, and he said, "Oh, you know, hello, Duke," and he said, "Oh, hello." He said, oh, I have to arrest you, Duke, for that attempted murder. And I suddenly went, hang on, what you, where's the backup? What's going on here? And he said, and the, the criminal said, which one, Mr Cook? That was the young officer's name. And he went, oh, the one at the Mekon Club. He said, oh, yeah, that one, I forget, cameras. He said, look, we're just going to lunch, so you better be at the police station at 4 o'clock. And he went, yeah, no, see you later, bye-bye. And I... And I thought, this is a bizarre, and I said to this officer, you know, thinking he's very junior, but and I didn't want to step on him, you obviously the street. And I said, are you serious? He went, oh, look, Deb, you'll take a hint. If we arrested everyone today that we see that's committed a murder or attempted murder, we never get lunch. So we just wow. wait. And sure enough, Duke turned up four, four o'clock to be arrested for the tent murder and, yes, got eight years. And so wow. that was, so yeah, so then we went on to, um, when, I, when after the leader got killed, um, there was a fair bit of political pressure um, of, for, on my bosses, my, my high boss, I was a young sergeant at the time and um, he, I was pulled aside and said, you're going to be put in charge of this um, gang squad and your job's to disrupt the 5T gang or dismantle them. I thought, oh, <laughs> really? So anyway, set about and did what I could best. But I, my, my first instinct, and again, yes, probably copped a fair bit of criticism, was I went to the gang and said, look, guys, we think we know the answer, but maybe we don't, so I'm going to ask you guys what am I going to have to do to break you up because I've got to look good here? And they just laughed for a minute and then said, well, madam, we're going to help you out because you're a bit dumb. They used to call me madam. Um, <laughs> so I said, um, you've, got to, you've got to understand why we've become what we are. And then they went through and told me about their history, about refugees and prison camps and coming here and petty crime, big crime, their reputation, etc. Um, they didn't apologise for what they'd become. They just said that's you just got to understand that. And they said the problem is we're done for, like three things will happen to us. We'll get killed, we'll go to jail, or if we live long enough, we might grow out. But the next generation, you've got to stop. Like you have to not just mow the lawn, you've got to cut the weeds. And to do that, you have to teach them. They have to have an education because we didn't. And without education, you can't get a job. Without a job, you have no hope. So that was how um, then my, my journey started with Father Chris Riley from Youth Office Streets in educating the, the, what the gang members coming through and I have to say what a wonderful um, period that was with him um, and the start of a, a lifelong friendship and um, what I saw, we argued at times, father, father had a particular view and I might have had a different view because uh, he said no kid is born bad 
And, yep, out of those six kids, we took down to his farms. Not one of them did a big, got involved in criminal activity. So amazing. And what a beautiful gift in your life to have met Father Chris O'Reilly when you did and to be involved. You were teaching some of those young gang members English and helping them with their schooling. Um, I don't know how you fitted that in around the running the, the, the gang squad that you were running at the time, but it must have been incredibly rewarding. You know, it was a bit, it was a bit of a departure from what we'd normally do because my job was to dismantle them and lock them up. And and it wasn't until years later um, that I was speaking with my boss that put me in charge of that because I thought it was a pretty ballsy move putting me in charge of a, a a gang unit woman, a young sergeant. And I remember asking him years later because we became friends as well once he retired. And I remember asking him, "What? Why did you give me that opportunity? Because you know I'm a woman and all of that stuff. You know that you know do you want something big? You know big blokey type." And he said, "Wallace," and, and, and even to this day, I don't know. I think he even knows my first name, Wallace. He said, um, "The reality is, I was under a bit of pressure to get the job done, and I needed it done. And if I put a guy in charge, I'd do a good job, no doubt about it. Their their way to do that would have been to try to arrest their way out of this problem." And he said, "I figured." We couldn't do that because you've been locking up them up for five years here on the streets as a detective here, and what's changed? They've got even bigger. So he said, the reality is, Wallace, I needed you to think differently, and I counted on the fact that you would because you weren't bound by doing things the way we've always done it. And you, you did that. You tried a, a, a social solution to a crime problem, and it worked. Um, and I'm so grateful to him because not many bosses would have taken that risk to have a go, but he was he was thought outside the square. He was a unique individual of a commander. But still, you're given this massive opportunity and an almost impossible task to dismantle one of the most feared gangs that that's ever existed. Oh, did you have sleepless nights? How did you how did you rise to that challenge and get the confidence to do that? Look, I think it's a case of saying, firstly, knowing I had the support of my boss. That was the the first the first thing, and um, following from that is that knowing knowing my ground, I guess, and that's where I often think to people, it's knowledge is power. If you if you go in and you're, you're having a, a second-guessing yourself, it won't work. So I think it's having the confidence to say, I know I've got the backing of my bosses, but also um, I've got the confidence to do this because I know the environment and that I knew, I knew the streets. I learned about the community. I learned about the, 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 the criminals. Um, so I thought I've got this knowledge. I've got the confidence to have a go. I've got this great guy Father Chris Riley who's proven it works. So I thought, hey, why not have a go? One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and you mentioned this at the very beginning, is you've become well known for your trademark heels and your colourful suits and for for maintaining your femininity in a really blokey culture. You, you just mentioned then that people would just call you Wallace and <laughs> I mean it's a it's a blokey environment and you would often um, have nowhere to put your gun, so you'd carry it in your handbag. <laughs> where did where did that come from where you wanted to maintain that that sense of who you were and your your femininity and how did that work out for you? It goes all the way back to my very first day. I mean, I was always a bit of a girly girl anyway. So you know, but in those days, you were the, the uniform didn't sort of lend itself to that. Let me tell you, it wasn't. It's not the most flattering uniform.
for me. But then when they allowed us to not wear culottes, we had to wear culottes, which weren't the most practical oh, for what our wardrobe. <laughs> they weren't very flattering. And then they let us, um, they changed and we were allowed to wear slacks. But the slacks, they didn't know how to deal with it. So we actually had um, board pants. So, again, they weren't the most flattering. They weren't cut for, for female hips. Uh, they weren't the most flattering. And so, but when I went to plain clothes, I went, hang on, they call it plain clothes. Hmm. Well, I'm not going to be plain. I'm going to I'm going to revert to type, and let's see how it goes. So I started dragging out the frocks and the and the suits and the end, and then it, and I just kept going. And yes, it it, um, it was amazing because um, they sort of said it was my trademark, and I'm thinking, well, it, and I hate that thing when you go to functions, people say you've got to develop a brand, and that became a bit of a a thing a few years ago that you go to a lot of um, leadership things. It was you know brand brand me, and I'm thinking, well, brands are like tokenistic I don't want to be a brand I'm just going to go to to be myself that's people pick a fake a mile away and if I say anything to anyone it's about be authentic be real so it was um my very first day at Blacktown and there's this um crown second class sergeant called Joan Stedman Joan Stedman was from the old school in fact her registered number is about 12 so she wasn't integrated <laughs> and she's still I still see her today she's the most wonderful and she was running this she trans she didn't want to go out on the trucks but she transferred into the new front line but she was the station sergeant she ran it like a military operation and she got me aside on my first day because everyone likes to give you advice in you know how to fit in and all that but hers was still resonates with me and she just looked at me and she said Deb I'm going to give you some advice and she said I want you to be true to yourself. She said, be proud of who you are. Always maintain your integrity and your femininity. Remember you're a policewoman, not a policeman. And I always thought about that and I thought, yep, you know what? I can't be one thing at work and one thing at home. I've got, I wow. just have to be both. I just have to be me. What amazing advice to receive so early on. Yeah, I, 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 I hear those words. Just and and because I had the utmost respect for her as an officer and as a and as a person, I thought you know you know we sure you know we always laugh about you know putting old heads on young shoulders. And I thought, well, I don't have to live it because he's this icon who's sharing this wealth of experience in these few short words. And yeah. uh, for me, it was absolutely true. Incredible. Let's talk about bikies now. <laughs> <laughs> Now you've been um, you've been sort of well regarded for making the lives of bikies hell, but I think there was a particular incident that made it to the papers where a sergeant of arms um, posted a um, it was something on Instagram or Facebook where he was a little bit offensive to you. It's been reported that you made him cry, but I'd love to hear your side of the story. What happened? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, I think there was a bit of poetic justice about making him cry. I definitely, don't think I made him cry he was a bit he was a bit perhaps teary well what had happened was that um we obviously in, in we have outlaw motorcycle gangs uh I'm talking about the the, the high risk ends there's, there's a number of groups around that are sort of more uh, lower level but these are you know there's a probably every state has their probably top 10 of outlaw motorcycle gangs and we don't confuse them of, of what they used to be like years ago you know sort of over you know you always got that vision of overweight guys with big beards riding bikes as a as a social thing, these are self-declared criminals. They, they're what they call themselves one percenters. In other words, we're the one percent of society who don't conform to law, and they wear it like a badge of honour. They're self-declared. Like we talk about getting groups declared criminal groups, we don't need to because they've declared themselves really in a way. 
Anyway, different groups come and go, strength to strength, and there was a group at um, Western Sydney uh, called the Nomads, and the Nomads had had, a, like, more changeovers than Rotary Clubs. They'd been the Nomads, they'd been the Banditos, they'd been the Hills Angels, all based around that Parramatta sort of out of Western Suburbs. And um, they'd set up a new chapter of the Nomads and uh, it was largely um, affiliated um, with a lot of um, Middle Eastern guys because they knew each other from that area. And uh, there was the president was of Middle Eastern background, so was his brother. And he was a sergeant of arms to the point that he even had tattooed on his face, which is now you don't see because he has a beard called Public Enemy. So, you know, he was sort of advertising this fact. Yes. So they went out and, and often what often happens, you know, they do this sort of like random acts of violence for, for mindlessness really. And they went to a nightclub in Parramatta and um, there was a young guy there with his girlfriend just having dinner, minding their own business. And for whatever happened, they stabbed him and he didn't, couldn't identify them. Um, the CCTV cameras inside didn't, couldn't show that because it was done pretty quickly and they all hazy and dark. And, of course, we knew the nomads were there. We knew the nomads per se were responsible. So we were never going to be able to prove who actually stabbed this guy. So my, um, my tactical commander, who was an amazing guy called Darren Beachy, one of my chief inspectors, Darren Be- Beachy um, was the toughest one of the, you know, he was a black belt in some martial arts and a, but, a, when you, but looked a bit like um, an accountant at times. And he said to me, he had this, this, this strategy called consequence-based policing. And the idea is, his view was, that if one person in the club plays up, then the whole lot will pay the consequences because they often operate as a gang, as a group. One, one's guilty, you're all guilty. So what we will do is we'll go out and, yes, we're not probably going to put them before courts for the stabbing, but we will put them before courts for everything else they do. And so uh, we sort of were taking down their clubhouses, booking them for, we have these really good consorting legislation, anything, traffic fines, parking fines, tax debts, anything. So we dismantled the, we were getting ready to dismantle this brand new beautiful clubhouse that they had built out at um, a suburb of Western City called Weatherall Park. It was magnificent. They must have spent a fortune. Anyway, so um, we, were dis- we dismantled their clubhouse and booked them for consorting. So it totally upset them this particular night. About a month after that, the boys from Raptor, who were my, you know, my tactical operational arm, came to me and they were so wonderful and said, boss, he's put something on Instagram about you. And I said, oh, I don't understand social media. What's Instagram? Well, they looked at me like I was a dinosaur. And they said, I said, well, what is it? And they said, oh, we don't, we don't want to tell you. And I said, well, was it a threat? They went, not really. They said, how about we play it? And they it put up, and the first one was something like, um, Deb Wallace, I think you're in love with me. <laughs> and I was a bit perplexed, followed by, um, Deb Wallace, I think you might be obsessed with me. So I think you and I should go and have a coffee and get to know each other better. Oh, my goodness. Followed by, but before we do, I've never met you, but I think you need to lose 12 kilograms off your big fat ASC bum. And I I just looked at the boys and I said, get him, boys. Yes, boss. So they went out and, and he had done a whole lot of things like uh, fraud stuff. He'd got a whole lot of mil, mil, half million dollars worth of um, fraud on insurance companies and finance companies and bought Lamborghinis and motorbikes, et cetera. So the boys were confiscating them all. After about a month after that, plus apparently anywhere in the state they'd go, not even Raptor guys, people would see him because he was sort of out and said, oh, you gave our boss a hard time. Anyway, so by this he's starting to get like, wow, what have I done? 
And um, by this stage, they bought about a month, the boys come back and say, well, she's put another one up and we opened it up and it said, Deb Wallace, I'd like to sincerely apologise to being disrespectful to you and your ass. But oh, my God. <laughs> and it was a bit teary. He says, can you now tell Raptor to back off? Like So, yeah, I don't think he actually and, – and, you know, we, we I went to a solicitor's not long after that in, in, in Maryland, the local area, and he was there. They had a coffee, they owned a coffee shop. And I walked past, you know, and I could hear, I think it's her, I think it's her. And then as I walked back past him, he said, they were sitting at some tables and said, Deb, is that you? And I said, yes, it's me. And he went, oh, boss, you know, Deb, I, I'm really sorry I did that. And he was really, really apologetic and very pleasant and just said, can I shout you a cup of coffee? And I said, no, I, I can't afford to do that. And he said, why not? I'll shout. I said, no, no because Raptor around the corner and I don't want to get booked for consorting. He went, John. So it was all, you know, again, you've got to just deal with those situations as they come. And not everything's heavy. Not everything's, you know, serious. You've got to look at the lighter side sometimes as well, knowing who they are and being mindful. But sometimes, yeah, taking the sting out of the tail is not a bad way to go. Absolutely. And, and I think what's really coming across for me in all of these, you know, I've been on the other side and I've seen these these gang members once they've, um, you know, been arrested and charged and, and are fronting court. So that's when I get to see them. And even then, these are intimidating people, you know, face tattoos. Um, these are people who can use machetes and have committed very serious crimes. Um, but the way that you talk about it, it's almost like they have a bit of respect for you. You, why do you think that is? Were you ever intimidated by them? And do you think it was because you looked so different? Look, I, I, th- I think maybe, uh, but, but having said that, um, we, you know, the, it was the team, it was the, the group of Raptor, it was the gang squad that they, I think their, their reputation was, you do, and I think they're smart enough under all that to know you don't make it personal. You might not like them and you get the thing, but, you know, what's the point in making threats it's only going to bring, as Darren would say, consequence-based policing. You know, imagine making a threat, what that would bring down, and that it wrecks it. It's smart enough to know it's about their business model. If they bring cops' attention, they can't run their business, which is about drugs, money, extortion, intimidation, exactly what you just said, very intimidating. You know, that's why they people say about outlaw motorcycle gangs, can you ever eradicate them? You can eradicate perhaps the individuals by, you know, locking them up, but the banner has been strong in these outlaw gangs since 1943. And so people may come and go, but it's the banner that gives them this sort of this sense of um, intimidation because if, you know, two groups walked in and, and said, mate, I'm here to extort you, the shop owners would probably go, well, you know, bugger off. But if you see three Hills Angels walk in, the shop owners are probably going to think twice about that because they're thinking, I don't want to take on the whole gang here you know, who have international connections in some of them. So you're 100% right. But I think I think it was a case when I first would go out with Raptor, because, again, taking on the advice from my Asians, um, gangsters, you can't beat us unless you understand us. So I would go out to see them in their own environment at their at their funerals, and I remember going out a few times and just sitting in the back when I first got to, to gangs in 2014. And I'd sit in the back and I was wearing, I remember wearing a, a floral frock and they were into a funeral and the, the raptor were managing the funeral procession, et cetera, making sure they didn't break road rules. And, um, and I just stood by the side of the car and they said to Darren, because Darren was negotiating or not negotiating, setting down the rules to the, to the president, um, did you bring a journalist along? And he just looked, I went, oh, no, no, that's our boss. And he went, yeah. and he said, you've got to be joking. Because I think they, 
um, often, and, and I think that's where we undersell ourselves, uh, when I went to take over Middle East and organised crime, we had um, commanders with the names of Snake and Slasher. I mean, they were, they, were, they were, again, I use that word lightly, iconic investigators, detectives, highly respected, and suddenly there's this bird wearing a pink suit. You know, how's this going? <laughs> but... You know, that's me. You know, they love me and like it or leave it. I'm hope and I and I think that's I hope people didn't think my suit might have divined who I was, but I've not got to hide from it. That's who I am. Yeah. You've you've had so many incredible moments and um from the outside looking in a completely stellar career. But as you mentioned at the beginning, you did have a period about twelve years into your career where you, you did have to dig deep to find some confidence. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think um, it's a case when you're when I was when I before I went into the taking on that first thing with the the, the gang squad at Cabramatta, and it was a and, and again it was a case where I was running doing what I thought was right. You know, everything was going okay. My boss was supporting me. Um, we were getting results. We had you know kids people getting locked up, and then suddenly. Um, I get a call from a gang, well, the gangs came to me and I was doing everything right. I got the best advice from one of my, my boss who said, you're going to be taking on this sort of high-risk area, so I'm going to give you three words. I went, oh, I don't think I need more advice than that. He said, no, no, these three words, record, record, record. And I, I went, he says, rewrite, record every interaction with every gang member. And I thought, okay, well, don't quite know why I do it, but I did. And, of course, um, I did that and, and I don't know whether it's because of my position, but one day the gang members came down to, it was in the middle of, just after the Royal Commission, and some gang members turned up at the police station and said, oh, madam, some people come to our pool hall and, and ask us questions about you. And I said, well, like what? And they said, well, ask if we give you money. And I said, they, I said what would you say? And they said, we said, no, she just yelled at us for not doing school and we say to her, to them, if we give her money, do you think she'd buy a better car? Because I, yeah. I had a very cheap-looking <laughs> car. Anyway, I was a bit surprised. I didn't take any notice. And, um, and then uh, I found out that it was the Royal Commission had somehow got, were making some decisions that I was corrupt. And, and yes, there was information going around that Cabramatta was being, had corrupt police in it, but it actually turned out not to be Cabramatta police because of the leadership we had there. It was um, some uh, other police from other areas coming in and, and being doing, you know, some, some wrong things in our area. Uh, but so that was all right. I, Mr McKinnon, my, my boss who gave me the charge of the gang squad, he supported me all the way through that. I, you know, I, was, I didn't even have to be interviewed in the end. And, in fact, he, whatever strings he pulled, whatever he talked to, whoever he talked to, when the Royal Commission approached me and said, oh, you know, we have to interview, but you're not allowed to talk to anybody, not even your bosses, well, I know that's the rules, but I thought, I don't know what this is about. This is a whole new world for me. So I rang Mr McKinnon and I said, I'm probably committing an offence by even ringing you. I don't know what, what I've done wrong. He said, leave it with me. And anyway, a few days later, um, he must have clarified everything, what my role was, why I'm meeting with the gangs, why I'm sitting with them on the street having coffee, why all of that, plus I had reports everywhere about what I was doing. And I got a call from the Royal Commission and said, look, it's all been clarified what you're doing. Don't worry, we don't need to interview you, but we want you to watch your back. And I said, well, don't worry, I'm not talking to another gang member as long as I live. <laughs> and they went, no, no, it's not gang members. You need to worry about it. It's from within. And I I went, oh, I got a bit of a shock about that. I said, no. And, he, they, and I, I thought it's just my job. I'm not trying to take someone's job. I'm just hitting the streets every day. I've got a great team. 
would someone really do this? And I suppose it did shake my confidence for a while. We, we went off the street. We didn't continue the school for a whole range of reasons. And um, I settled back into more um, what you saw traditional investigation. I, I, you know, just did detective work. I didn't try to do that other more think outside the square box because I thought, wow, that's brought my, I've, I've put my own horns in. This is, if you stick yourself out there, this is what happens. So I think I might go back to being a bit beige again. Um, mm. But lo and behold, it all worked out and, um, and, you know, and I thought it wasn't going to get me down because I thought, no, I, I, you know, I was, someone said, the Royal Commission said to me, why are you, they are after the Royal Commission, said to me, what, what made you at Cabramatta, this group, be so straight? So on, I said, we had amazing leadership in our bosses, particularly Sergeant Cole Hilson. But also I said the Ken and Aileen principle, they went, oh, is that a famous principle? What's that? Never heard of that principle. What textbook? They said, no, it's my parents. They taught Aww. me to have integrity and be, and be honest. So wow. nothing was going to change that. Oh, that's a great story. And thank God you didn't stay beige because yeah. <laughs> we've got enough beige in the world, Deb. Yeah. <laughs> um, just quickly, because we are getting to the end of our chat together and you've shared so much. How did you decide that it was time to, to go? It must have been a really tough decision. You know what? You know what? <laughs> Any ladies, I, I lied about my age for a while. You see, I kept putting my age back, and uh, this is because I was still going. I mean, I was happy to kick along. You know, we were kicking goals in, in the squad. We were having a great time. Everything with the bikies were offshore. We had great laws. We had you know the visibility completely gone out. Outlaw motorcycle gang. So you know, we had them. We had our our foot on their throat, so to speak. You know, as in, you know, we got we got them where we need them. Um, keep the pressure on now and then suddenly um, and I'm in this you know people might appreciate this is a there's a I joined because I joined so long ago we had a a good pension scheme that matured when you got to 60 it meant if you stayed after 60 then there was a huge financial detriment to you so I was talking to my sister who's 10 years older than me and she said to me oh you know um, I dealt with 60 okay but I really struggled turning 70 it felt really different and I said oh well you've got a few years to go and she said, how old do you think you are? And I said, oh, I don't know, I've lied so much, 57? She says, congratulations, you're turning 60 in November. So, <gasps> so I ran across to the, to the super people. I said, tell me just straight, tell me just what happened. Because, you know, I'm, I'm so blessed that I was able to, I was able-bodied, able, I had no, that I could tell any post-traumatic stress. Like I know a lot of cops struggle with lots of things that go on. I was one of the real lucky ones that was still really physically and mentally, emotionally fit. Um, so they said to me, I said, I just want simple figures if I retire. And they looked at me and said, retire, retire. Oh, we haven't got the figures, but we can tell you this. If you stay after 60, you're hugely at a, a financial impost. And I thought to myself, I'm, not, I'm, I'm keen, enthusiastic, and I'm committed, but I'm still also not silly. So I've given 36 years. And so now it's time to do some stuff for me, which is back doing stuff for the community, just not not paid for it, which is, um, you know, I'm, I was well, you know, remunerated in, in the cops for my for my job. So I don't want for anything. So now I just do things that really make me happy. That's amazing, including um, co-authoring a new book, which um, is incredible, A Woman of Force, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. And it really goes into a lot of those stories that you've just told, but a lot more because you've, you've obviously done so much. Um, so for anyone who loves true crime, who just loves listening to stories of a woman who has just forged a path, I strongly recommend this book. It's a brilliant read and congratulations. Thank you so much. 
Now, I've got some rapid fire questions for yeah, you. Yeah, okay. I would okay. love to know because I'm sure, you know, you now act as a mentor for many um, young women who are coming through the ranks. What would be your number one confidence tip? You know what? It goes all, it sounds weird, but I remember, and I know, I remember my, I went to Parramatta High School and I remember my school song, but I also remember the motto, Fax Mentis in Kendium Gloriae, and that means knowledge is the pathway to glory. Now, at the time back in school days, we went, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, right, we just sing it, we don't know if you know what I mean. Reflecting back all those years, I think the number one confidence for me was that knowledge Knowing that you had you you had it on merit, you had the ground, um, and I remember not wanting to go for a job at the Asian Organised Crime Squad. So now I step up into this place called the State Crime Command, which is where detectives love to go. And I remember the position came up for the commander, superintendent of the Asian Organised Crime Squad, and I wasn't applying because I'd only be there for two years. And my boss, another amazing mentor called Graham Morgan, just looked at me very seriously and said you're not applying. I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not ready yet. I need, you know, he said, all right. He said, you have the quality to be able to tell a Vietnamese name from a Cambodian name, from a Laotian name, from a Chinese name. I said, well, yeah, I know I've worked that area for 15 years. He said, okay, if someone gets this job who's never, ever worked in an Asian community and understands them and you haven't applied, don't you whinge. But <sighs> if, you, if you do apply and you miss out, you can whinge all, the, all you like. And I think it was a good message. I felt the knowledge, and he had to point that out to me. I had, on merit, maybe I had it, but I wasn't prepared to acknowledge it. So knowledge, I say to anyone, build your strengths. Don't keep jumping from post to post and, you know, and looking, keep going, get that ground, get the credibility, and the rest will follow. That is such a cracker of a tip. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, Is there a book that you've read or an inspirational quote that's really helped you on your way in your confidence journey? Uh, yeah, there, there's a, uh, a book that um, I have read, and it sounds weird again. If anyone's starting to embark on that leadership, and I talk about leadership, not management, um, Paul McKinnon, my original boss at Cabramatta, gave that to me, and it was called Sun Tzu, The Art of War. It's it's really, if you have to read it, it's not easy reading at times, but it, it's, it talks a bit like Confucius in a way, but it's really, if you read it, it gives some amazing tips on things like, um, you know, the water is stronger than, than the rock which is means, you know, just be, don't have to use force. The, the water will wear down the rock, you know, and time. All of that mm. about patience, so all of that. Uh, so, but I think one of the best quotes, and uh, again, I could get a bit wrong, so I'll just think it was by Judy Garland. And she said, always be a first-rate version of yourself instead of a second-rate version of somebody else. Oh, I love that. That's that's a really good one. What do you do for pure joy, something that's got no outcome attached to it? Well, 14 years ago, I discovered the beauty of having rescue dogs. So, oh. yeah, so I've had five. Up until recently, I had five. I've just lost my two oldest ones, Jack and Gilmore, who are brothers from a puppy farm. Uh, they were Maltese Shih Tzus, and I've now got three left, which is Lily. She's a, a Maltese Shih Tzu and two Shih Tzu Chihuahuas. So, oh, um, yes. <laughs> you know, you, you can't be, you can't look have a bad day, no matter what, when you walk through that door and there's unconditional love just comes up. Everything else just disappears. That is divine. And what are you working on right now in your confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in your life? Well, I've, like I said, I, I still want to um, do service. I find it's fulfilling. In fact, 
just a real quick quote from, from Winston Churchill. It says, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Yeah, and I, I, I hope to take that into my next few years. And so I've signed up for Meals on Wheels. No, I don't cook. So I'm not a cooker, but I'm a deliverer. And um, I'm also sitting on some um, community volunteer boards as well. Well, that's beautiful. And I think, you know, if, if history is anything to go by as a predictor for future success, you'll just grab whatever it is by the horns and, and absolutely succeed at whatever you do. And people are lucky to have you. Deb, thank you so much for sharing all those amazing stories. I feel really inspired having spoken to you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turn. Six podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.